0: Try the microphone again. Okay, I think we're good there. Um, Please. chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 took last Sunday off to talk a little bit more specifically about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, of course. But um, the word of God is always true. The word of God always points us to the gospel of Christ. And that's one reason why it doesn't really matter what text we use on any Sunday, it highlights Jesus, it magnifies Jesus. And so we're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke this morning and pick up where we left off in chapter 17. And as we do, I want to just remind us of some things I think that we want to keep in mind, keep the context always before us. Remember that Luke in chapter 1, first four verses, told us that he wrote his Gospel as an orderly account, he compiled, he, he conducted, uh, had eyewitness testimony, did interviews, consulted the written records that were available, and he com- carefully compiled an orderly account of the life and ministry of Jesus so that, he says, we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. This has been, gospel, the Gospel of Luke, all of the Word of God, of course, but the Gospel of Luke in particular that we're studying has been written so that we can be certain about the things we've been taught about Jesus Christ. In the first nine chapters, Luke recorded the events from the life and teaching of Jesus those first couple of years. And in writing those early chapters, Luke was, uh, was teaching us and revealing to us, confirming to us, that Jesus was indeed God's Son who had come in the flesh as God's Messiah to save his people from their sins. The whole point is to introduce us to Jesus, if you will, put Jesus on center stage, show us that he was who he said he was. He was God's son. He was, had been sent as God's Messiah to save his people from their sins. In chapters 10 through 19, which is where we are now, Luke has kind of focused in particularly on Jesus' ministry of discipleship, his mission of discipleship. As you know, Jesus raised up disciples to follow him and to learn from him and eventually to carry on his ministry after him this section chapters 10 through 19 roughly contains that last year of jesus's life before he goes to the cross and in that last year we see a lot of jesus teaching in fact much of this section is jesus teaching many parables many direct instructions to his disciples We're going to see in chapter 17 that this emphasis on discipleship once again, and we'll look at that in a moment. But already up to this point, we have seen Jesus teaching his disciples on many matters, ranging from radical obedience to gospel proclamation, loving the poor and outcast, devotion to the word, prayer, how to pray, daily trusting in God, preparation for adversity, the sacrificial cost of discipleship, financial stewardship, and so much more. The thing I take away from that, sort of again, stepping back and seeing this section in context, is that discipleship is all-encompassing. Discipleship isn't about one thing in particular. It is all-encompassing. It is about how disciples are to live as disciples. And as Jesus teaches his disciples what that means He really is addressing every aspect of life. Discipleship is full-orbed. Discipleship touches on every part of life, from our thoughts to our words to our actions to our attitudes to our relationships to our interactions with everything in this world. Every part of life comes under this idea, this reality of discipleship. And we see that again here in chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at it in a moment. Jesus continues teaching about discipleship. And as he does so, he addresses several different aspects of the disciples' walk. He talked about the necessity of watchfulness, the importance of rebuke, the application of forgiveness, the impact of faith, the essentials, the essential of obedience. These instructions are all part of discipleship. As we read through the text together today, you might say, I'm not sure how all this connects together. It's almost as if it sounds like sort of a stream of consciousness, right? Jesus is just simply giving bullet points on matters of discipleship. It's hard for us to sort of connect these things together. Luke may simply have just been summarizing a longer teaching of Jesus and just kind of giving us that, the Cliff Notes version in this section, But when we read these, even though we might not see the connections together, they're very simple to understand. This doesn't take a lot of explanation to understand what Jesus is talking about here. And the importance of these matters of discipleship cannot be denied. So we want to look at the text, Luke chapter 17. We want to start in verse 1 and we'll go all the way to verse 10. And he said to his disciples, "...temptations to sin are sure to come." And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. When any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will be able to eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There are four, I think, four overarching, four basic instructions here that Jesus gives to his disciples that again touch on various aspects of the disciples' walk. They relate to different ways of following Jesus, different ways in which we follow Jesus. And so I just want to kind of go through these for this morning. First, in verses one through three, the first instruction here is beware of leading others into temptation. Beware of leading others into temptation. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus makes that point crystal clear. He warns his disciples of leading other disciples into temptation. And he begins this uh, instruction by acknowledging that temptations are and will always be a part of a disciple's experience of living in this sinful world. We will always face temptation. So long as you are above the ground, so long as you are breathing and moving and living, you are going to face temptations just as a part and parcel of living in this world. Now, in verse 1, the word that is translated sin in the Greek is the word skandalon. It's the word where we get our English word scandal. And a skandalon is simply a stumbling block. If you were to walk down the aisle to leave this morning and I threw something in front of you, that would be a stumbling block. The goal would be to make you trip. And that's the idea of a stumbling block here. A scandalon is a stumbling block that is put in front of a person to make them trip and fall, presumably to cause some kind of serious bodily injury. But in the New Testament, it is used as a metaphor for causing one to sin spirit, or causing one to stumble spiritually, or that spiritually stumbling what we call sin. And that sin can have serious repercussions for one's discipleship, including Apostasy from the faith. There are some times when that stumbling block would lead someone just to abandon the faith altogether. Now, since creation, since the fall of Adam and Eve, temptation to sin has always been a feature of living in this sinful world. It's a reality that we experience just by living here. In fact, the Greek of verse 1, the Greek sentence of verse 1, is hard to translate into English, but one of the words indicates there that it is an impossibility to live apart from temptation. In other words, temptation is an ongoing reality. It is in, I think the NASV says it is inevitable that we will face temptations in this life. And that makes sense, right? That makes sense because we live with a spiritual enemy. Satan is a tempter. He is the great tempter whose mission it is to lead us into temptation so that we continually sin against God. It's a reality, too, because this sinful world in which we live delights in sin and calls us to sin as well. We don't need Satan to tempt us. We have everything else that is out there with its bright flashing lights and it's, its all of its seductive accoutrements, all of its seductive calls to us come and participate in this sinfulness. In fact, Jesus says in a similar passage, Matthew 18:7, he says, "Woe to the world for temptations to sin." In other words, temptation is or sin, uh, the world is a tempter. The world is calling us to temptation is tempting us to sin. But even disciples, Jesus I think is warning us here implicitly. Even disciples, if we do not pay attention to our own lives, if we do not pay attention to our own sanctification, we too can get caught up into sin and lead other brothers and sisters to sin as well. We've got to be careful about that. That we could be willing or unwilling accomplices in causing others to join in sin and in tempting others to sin. And Jesus, notice in verse uh, verse 1, the second part of that verse, pronounces a curse on those who would lead disciples into temptation. He says... Woe to the one through whom they come. That word woe is an Old Testament word. It is a, is a word that is, we draw from the prophets, and it was part of their proclamation to Israel. When they would warn the people of Israel of God's judgment coming because of their sin, because of their, their covenant unfaithfulness, because of their idolatry. They would oftentimes include the word woe. For example, Isaiah chapter 3 verse 11. Woe to the wicked. He's talking to Israel. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt, dealt out shall be done to him. In other words, what they are doing, the sinful things they are doing to others will be measured back to him. It's a warning that God's judgment will come upon the sinner. And in a similar fashion here, Jesus is warning those who lead his disciples into temptation of God's terrible judgment. It is a bad thing, it is a terrible thing to lead a disciple into sin. In fact, he even compares God's judgment with an analogy in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The millstone you may be familiar with is the upper stone in a grinding mill from this particular time period. It was used to grind uh, the daily grain. It weighed hundreds of pounds and could only be turned when it was tethered to a, a donkey or an ox or a team of donkeys or a team of oxen that would walk around in a circle. sort of like a track. They would keep walking all the way around to get this millstone to move to grind the grain into flour they could use for their baking. But it was super heavy. So you can imagine, you can picture what Jesus is saying here. If you hang a millstone on someone's neck and cast them into the sea, what's going to happen? They're going to sink to the bottom. They're going to inevitably drown. They're going to be lost. They're going to lose their life. And even by our own modern standards, that sounds like a tragic and awful and horrific death. But Jesus says that kind of death would be preferable to the eternal judgment that one would receive for tempting others to sin. So Jesus is teaching us in this brief warning about the nature of sin and the power of temptation. He says here by this that sin is dangerous. Sin is not to be trifled with. It's not something that we can play around with or pay, play fast and loose with. Sin completely changes the nature of one's relationship with God. And if you want to see the best example of that, go back to creation and see what happened to Adam and Eve. It was one sin. The single sin of eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden that caused them to be cut off from a relationship with God. And the consequence of that was not just Adam and Eve, but all of us who have descended from them. It wasn't just a sin that cut off just two people. It was a sin that plunged the entire human race into sin. It's a sin that fractured man's relationship with God. Not just theirs, but all of ours. Friends, sin is serious business, and God calls His people to stay away from sin and live sanctified lives. First John, chapter three, verses eight through ten, we read that whoever makes a practice of sinning, whoever is not watchful of their lives and continues to give themselves over to a lifestyle of sin, whoever makes a practice of sin, sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident, you, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Sin is serious business. Jesus warns here about those who would lead his disciples into sin because of the gravity of sin and what it does to them spiritually. And Jesus also teaches us by this warning here that there is great power in temptation that temptation is not to be trifled with that we can't play fast and loose with temptation we cannot fool around with temptation because the consequences of giving in to temptation are grave we are warned that we when we we are warned that we will face temptation it's a reality but we are also even more strongly warned to avoid temptation it is temptation that lures us to sin Sin violates that relationship with God. In fact, sin is such serious business because it destroys the divine human relationship. And so, Jesus pronounces a great judgment on those who tempt his disciples to sin. That judgment is severe. Jesus says in another context, it's like the blind leading the blind. They both fall into the ditch. Those who would take someone and knowingly, willingly lead them into temptation will face severe judgment. Jesus pronounces the woe of eternal judgment. And so Jesus closes this warning in the first part of verse three with an exhortation for his disciples to examine themselves. We ought not to be ones who lead our brothers and sisters into temptation. Pay attention to yourselves, he says. Pay attention to your lives. Examine your own heart. Examine your own lives so that you are walking in holiness, so that you're walking in sanctification, so that you're not walking in sin and you're not leading others into sin. We don't want to walk in the ways of Satan, right? Satan is the great tempter. If you lead others into temptation, who are you following? You're not following God, you're following Satan. That's what the verse from 1 John 3 made clear. We do not want to walk in the ways of Satan. We don't want to lead others astray. The consequences are severe and eternal. They are worse than we can imagine. So it's important for us to ask ourselves, who are we following? And how are we following Him? We need to pay attention to our sanctification. We need to pay attention to our way of life. We need to continue to walk closely with Christ. We need to be mindful of our personal holiness so that we walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ. We walk in a manner that pleases Christ. We don't want to imperil anyone by our walk. So beware of leading others into temptation. Second instruction comes in verses 3 and 4. Extend forgiveness graciously. Extend forgiveness Graciously. Now, again, it's hard to see the connection between verses 3 and 4 or verses 2 and 3. But you can imagine a situation where a brother gives into temptation, right? He's led into temptation. He's sinned against God. He's sinned against the brother. He's sinned against the church. What do you do now with the one who has sinned? If temptation is really a reality of living in this sinful world, there's gotta be a way that we can deal with disciples who have given themselves over to temptation. How do we deal with that? Jesus is going to answer us in verse 3. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Just as temptation is a reality of life, so also for the Christian, unfortunately, sin is an ongoing struggle for us. Sin is an ongoing reality for us as well. Our aim is holiness. Our aim is to walk in the way of righteousness. Our way, our, our aim is to live like Jesus. But if we say we have no sin, right? 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As long as we struggle, as long as we live in this world, we're going to struggle with sin. Unfortunately. And so we are between, the followers of Jesus are between two Polarities. On the one hand, we've been sanctified from sin and we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We're called to walk in a new way of life. But on the other hand, sin is still an ongoing struggle for the believer. We are warned against it. We are called to fight it. We are urged to walk in holiness. And yet we will sin. So how do we handle the reality of sin in the lives of other disciples? Jesus says, first, first exhorts his disciples to rebuke those who sin, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. The word brother there refers to a spiritual brother. is also is all-encompassing, not just brothers, but also sisters. Brothers and sisters, spiritual brothers and sisters, fellow disciples who have entrusted themselves to Jesus in repentance and faith. The word rebuke means to expose one's faults. It means to rebuke, it means or to reprove, it means to correct, it means to confront, it means to acknowledge, it means to make aware, right? The word rebuke points to a commitment to righteousness. We don't want brothers and sisters to continue living in sin. To continue living in sin reveals what? You're of the devil, you're born of the devil, you're not born of God. We don't want brothers and sisters in Christ to keep walking in sin. So what do we do? Jesus says, Rebuke them, point them back to the way of righteousness. The word rebuke points to a commitment to pursue righteousness. When brothers and sisters err in the faith, we have the responsibility to hold them accountable for the way that they are walking. We want to encourage one another to desire and pursue righteousness as part of our daily living. Friends, God has called us to a high standard. He's called us to the standard of Christ's likeness. What kind of holiness did Christ show in his earthly walk. It was absolute perfection. That is what we should strive towards. And one means of grace that God has given to us to help us in that endeavor is one another in the body of Christ. We have brothers and sisters who should help us partly by rebuking us, by pointing out our sinfulness and helping us to walk in the way of righteousness. Now, before we all get amped up, And get ready to go rebuke our brothers and sisters for their sins. Let's remember that this is not a license to become the rebuke police, right? It was not a license to put every person's sin under a microscope and go and confront them of every sin in their life. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, about what paternal correction involves. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we want to call our brothers and sisters to holiness. But we want to examine ourselves first and make sure that we are walking in holiness. Just because you want to go rebuke somebody else doesn't mean that you don't need to be rebuked yourself. Right? The rebuke should be loving. It should be... In the spirit of Christ, it should be done with kindness. It should be done with the aim of pointing people to righteousness, restoration, reconciliation. Examine your own hearts. Examine your own faults before you go rebuking someone else. But if we do see a fellow disciple engrossed in a pattern of sin, or we see a brother or sister succumbing regularly to temptation, then we should be quick to rebuke them for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of their own sanctification. We pray that when we need to rebuke that our brother or sister will repent. That's the goal. The goal is not just to point out. The goal is to bring them to repentance. The goal is to bring them back to righteousness. The goal is to bring them back to walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. So how do we respond then? If we, if a brother or sister is sinning, we rebuke them, and they repent of it, which is what we should hope for, how do we deal then with the repentant disciple? Jesus goes on and exhorts us in verse 3 to forgive those who repent. If if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Forgive those who repent. If a brother or sister repents, then fellow disciples are to forgive him or her. The word Forgive, the word repent here means to turn away, right? And to turn around. We are encouraging those who, when they sin, to repent, to turn away from their sin, to turn to God in the way of righteousness. The word forgive means to release or to let go. So when we forgive a person of their sins, we are letting their sins go. We are not holding those sins any longer to their account. We're not allowing those sins to affect our future relationship with them as fellow disciples. We are to forgive disciples who err and eagerly reconcile with them. Of course, our forgiveness to our brothers and sisters is modeled on God's forgiveness to us in Christ, right? Right? God has forgiven us of our sins on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, what we celebrated last Sunday, what we celebrate every Sunday. God sent His Son into the world to die for our sins, to forgive us of our sins. And because those sins have been forgiven, God no longer holds them to our account. We are reconciled to God. We have a new relationship with Him. We are adopted into His family as children. Our sin no longer has any bearing on how we relate to God. The essence of what God has done for us in Jesus then is a model for how we are to extend forgiveness to those in our body who sin, and perhaps even sin against us. So what do we do if a disciple keeps sinning? They repent, we forgive, but what if they keep on doing this? And that's a tragic reality, right? The tragic reality is that we will keep on sinning, so how do we deal with disciples who continue to struggle with sin? And Jesus says that as long as they repent, we are obligated to forgive. Verse 4, and if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And Jesus here gives us an illustration of a person who sins seven times a day. And as long as he repents every time that he sins, disciples are obligated to extend forgiveness. The word seven there is probably being used not literally but metaphorically in the Old Testament pattern where uh, the word seven in this case would mean frequently or, or constantly. Now, Jesus isn't saying you tabulate and on the eighth time you yeah, nope, can't forgive you today. You've, all, you've exhausted all your attempts for forgiveness today. You can try to forgive it tomorrow, but you're out. Now, Jesus is saying be open-handed in your forgiveness. Extend forgiveness Generously. There should be no limitation to how often we extend forgiveness to our fellow disciples. As long as they repent, we are to forgive and to be gracious in extending that forgiveness. We don't hold a grudge. Right? Okay, I forgive you. Because I have to. No. We do it graciously. We do it lovingly. We do it with kindness. We do it with great joy. In fact, in this particular time period, first century Judaism, the rabbinic writings considered it honorable to forgive a person three times. You were not bound to forgive a person any more than three times. If you did that, that was honorable. Jesus shatters that mindset. He shatters that tradition. He calls his people to keep on forgiving. And if you think that that's unjust, just think about God's own forgiveness of you. Aren't you glad that on the eighth time you sin in a day, God says no more forgiveness for you. If you think you don't sin more than seven times a day, start keeping track, right? Again, our forgiveness of others is modeled upon God's forgiveness of us. Forgiveness should be a hallmark of Christian discipleship. Instruction number three, have faith in God. Have faith in God, verses five and six we see this, uh, this point made that Jesus makes for us. And again, it's hard to see the connection between verses 4 and 5, but if you think about it for a minute, if we think about the idea of forgiveness, forgiveness can be a hard thing, can it not? Jesus calls us to forgive graciously. He calls us to forgive abundantly. And because forgiveness can be a very hard thing, especially when that sin may be directed to us, or maybe because the consequences extend to us, or because the consequences are so severe, it may be a hard thing for us to forgive. Forgiveness requires a deep faith in God. And so, it's very possible that the disciples responded to Jesus, His words in verses 3 and 4, to what they say in verse 5. Increase our faith. We don't have enough faith to forgive those who sin against us. We don't have enough faith to forgive those who sin egregiously. Increase our faith. Forgiveness can be a hard thing. And since forgiveness is hard, we need faith to forgive. We need faith to trust God that His word about forgiveness is right and true and that He can work good and righteous purposes, purposes in forgiveness. And so the disciples asked Jesus for an increased measure of faith. The word increase there means to add. In other words, they don't suggest that they don't have any faith at all. They just think that they don't have enough faith. That what little they have, they need more on top of that. The word increase, the word add even, if we could use the word add here, suggests a quantification of faith, that faith is measured by degrees. But Jesus' response here suggests the opposite, right? He says in verse 6, If you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Jesus here emphasizes the presence of faith Over the quantity of faith. Jesus emphasizes the presence of faith. He compares faith to a grain of mustard seed in verse 6. The word grain just literally means seed or even a kernel of a seed. A grain of mustard seed refers to a single seed of a mustard seed. The mustard seed would have been the tiniest known seed in the Middle East. It was often used as a metaphor for something of very small size. If you happen to be using the insert in your bulletin for the sermon notes this morning, you will notice that on the the top upper left corner, there is taped to that, that sermon outline, a mustard seed. Someone gave me a whole bunch of them a while back. And I thought, that's kind of hard to put up on an overhead for you to see how small it is, because you wouldn't be able to see how small it is. But if you happen to have that insert, you can see on the corner there just how small a mustard seed really is. From that grain of mustard seed, if you were to plant it into the ground, it would grow up into a tree or a shrub of some size. It would sprout and it would grow because the power of growth, the power of maturity was latent in the seed. As long as the seed is given the right conditions, its growth can be maximized. So by using a grain of mustard seed as a point of reference, Jesus tells his disciples they simply need faith. They simply need It is not necessary to think of degrees of faith or quantities of faith as sufficient or insufficient. Faith alone is simply needed. And notice the impact of that faith. Faith results. It works to supernatural results. In fact, Jesus shows the impact of faith in God through an analogy of uprooting a mulberry tree and planting it in the sea. In verse 6, right? You could say if you had this faith, if you had the faith... Like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The mulberry tree there is a particular type of mulberry tree in that particular part of the world called a sycamine tree or a black mulberry tree. What's interesting about it was it's known for its extensive root system. The roots would go down deep It would spread out wide. And the root system, because they were so extensive, could cause the tree to last or to live for as many as 600 years. So you can imagine a 600 year old mulberry, black mulberry tree with a deeply rooted, deeply rooted into the ground, extensive root system, even just uprooting that with a shovel would take Herculean work for, the, for Jesus to say you can speak to this mulberry tree and tell it to be uprooted is a miraculous thing. It's a supernatural thing. It is impossible. Unless God does it. And Jesus says to his disciples that if they have faith, they could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted, and it would be uprooted. Think to you about the other part of that, be planted into the sea. How do you plant something into the sea? How do you plant something in water? I know there's hydroponics today. That wasn't back in the first century. How would you take a mulberry tree, 600-year-old mulberry tree, extensive root system, tell it to be planted into water, into the sea? Again, it's an impossible thing. And yet Jesus says that if his disciples have faith, it could be done. It would require a miracle. It would be impossible unless something supernaturally, uh, supernatural occurred. Now, Jesus, of course, is using here a figure of speech, right? He is. He's, he often does in his teaching, he's using uh, a figure of speech. He, this case is called a hyperbole or an over-exaggeration used to make an emphatic point. Jesus did not envision his disciples sitting around mulberry trees all day telling them to be uprooted and planting them into the sea. That would go against everything else he taught us, right? But he is teaching his disciples to have faith. Even faith that seems weak or small. Faith that could be compared to the size of a single grain of mustard seed. He calls them to have faith. But again... The power of faith is not in faith itself, but in the object of faith. The power of faith is not in faith itself, but in the object of faith. And what is the object of our faith? Who is the object of our faith? It is God. Jesus is calling his disciples to put their faith in God and to trust God for all matters of life. But even for those things particularly that seem impossible or require a miracle, like Forgiving your brother who's hurt you or sinned against you. You might think, what if they what if a brother or sister keeps committing the same sin? Jesus says, keep forgiving. That's it can be a hard thing. How do you do that? Faith in God. Trust God that His word is true and right and good. His purposes are accomplished. What if what if by a brother or sister's sin they keep offending me and keep hurting me? Forgive them. But that's hard. Yes, it is. But trust God. He's commanded you to do it. It is good and it is true and it is right and it accomplishes His purposes. What if the sins are so egregious? What if they are so damaging to me or to my church or to other people? Forgive. Keep forgiving. But it's so hard, yes. But God's Word is true and it is good and it is right and it accomplishes His purposes. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. What if, I keep, what if I keep forgiving people when it seems impossible? How can I keep forgiving when it seems impossible? Jesus' answer, again, in the context of this would be have faith in God. Trust God to give you the grace and power to forgive. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. If by faith we can uproot mulberry trees and plant them in the sea, then we can trust God to do these seemingly impossible as he accomplishes his redemptive purposes in the lives of his people. Faith is certain to accomplish its goal because its object is an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and all-wise God. Last instruction comes in verses 7 through 10, and that is gladly obey the Lord's commands. Gladly obey the Lord's commands. Jesus goes from one parable in verse 6 to another one in verse 7, talking about obedience to God's commands. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did? What was commanded? Jesus is here telling again a parable that is kind of a shocking parable, right? It, he's presenting a role reversal. Imagine a situation where a servant has been out all day in the field working or tending the sheep and he comes back in and the master says to him, you know what? You've worked hard all day. Go and change your clothes, go get washed up, come back. I'm going to prepare you a meal. You sit down and I'll serve you this meal because you've worked hard all day. Is that what a master would do? No, absolutely not. Why? Because the master is the master and the servant is the servant, right? Jesus' answer here expects a no answer in verse 7. There's no way that a master would say this to his servant. He would not invite him back in and tell him, you know what, go get ready and come back and I'll serve you your evening meal. In fact, he, said, he would say just the opposite. Will he rather not say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? That answer expects a yes answer. In fact, it's in the Greek it's kind of humorous. way jesus is asking this there's no way a master would do such for his servant but the servant is expected from coming in from working all day in the field and having to continue doing the work of a servant he comes in after a long hard day gets himself ready prepares his meal dresses appropriately serves the master his meal for as long as the master's at the table and then and only then when the master is done does the servant come and feed himself does he sit down to eat and drink why does that happen? Because the master is the master and the servant is the servant. The master's role is to command. The servant's duty is to serve. And he should take on that role. He should fulfill his role as an obedient servant. And Jesus adds a little bit of a twist in verse 9. When he says, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So this, assuming here the servant does what he's supposed to do. Does the servant or does the master say to the servant, you know what? Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for your service to me. Thank you for for working all day in the field and coming back in and preparing my meal and serving me at the table. You are such a great servant. Is that what a master would do in first century Palestine? Absolutely not. There is no need for the master to thank his servant because the servant was simply doing what he was commanded to do. The slave is simply required to perform his duty; he needs no gratitude or encouragement from his master. And so Jesus applies the parable to his disciples in verse ten. The word "so" makes that connection very clear. Just like the servant did all that was commanded of him, so also are disciples commanded to do are to, to do what God has commanded of them. They don't need the thanks of a grateful God. They don't need encouragement from an affirming. God. They simply need to do what God has commanded them to do. Now, notice in verse 10, the disciples humility. They say, first of all, we are unworthy servants. You see the humility there? We're servants. already. That's humility enough. They're servants already. In first century Jewish society at that time, servants had a very low social standing. They were servants their relative position to others in society made them unworthy they're at the, they're at the bottom they're at the lower rung of the social order and they're expected to act with a humility that's befitting to their place in the social order they are servants but even more they say they are unworthy servants we are unworthy of the care that you show to us we are unworthy of being your servants Jesus here teaches his disciples to understand their relative position before the holy and exalted Lord, as we sing about this morning. God is holy and we are not. We are unworthy to be in his presence. We are unworthy servants. We are to be grateful to be his servants. We should be be glad that we are his servants. We should gladly obey the commands he gives to us because of what he has done for us. But we are unworthy. Notice also that the disciples here acknowledge that they simply have done what they are expected to do. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. They've done their duty. They've done what God's commanded. The word duty is a financial term that speaks to something that is owed. It became a metaphor to use for something that ought to be done. So a servant's duty is to do what a servant owes his master. He is to serve his master because that is what he deserves to do. His master possesses him for that purpose. He exists to serve at the master's pleasure and obey his commands. He doesn't need his master's gratitude or affirmation. He simply does as he is commanded. Jesus here speaks of our responsibility as servants of God. God has given us commandments to obey. He's given us ordinances to obey. He's given us rules to obey. And as servants, we are to do them quickly and happily and faithfully. But where the parable breaks down where we might press too much to make an exact one-to-one correspondence is in this way there is a distinction between the human master and god our master whereas a human master may despise his servants god our master delights in his servants he's under no obligation to do for us any more than our duty requires And yet, by grace, he does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could hope for or imagine as his servants. What a great God we have. The pleasure of God should then should motivate us to do all the more our duty as his servants, to know what God has done for us, to know how he delights in us. It should motivate us all the more to do our duty as his servants. In fact, I. As I was writing this, I just, I don't know, unconsciously was singing a song that I remember from my childhood. It's one of my dad's favorite hymns. And the third verse goes like this. Let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the role is called up yonder, I'll be there. That's awesome. We'll be there. We'll be in his presence. We'll be his servants. We've spent our lives laboring and serving for the Lord here on earth. We've talked about his wondrous love and care. And we're happy to do our duty as his servants. We're happy to obey. We're happy to be faithful because of this great reward, this great destiny that he has provided for us. Or better yet, let's hear the words of Paul, the exhortation of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So, brothers and sisters, how is your discipleship? How how are you walking with Jesus? Are you fighting temptation and encouraging your brothers and sisters to walk in the way of righteousness and not tempting them to sin? Are you graciously forgiving your fellow disciples when they sin and encouraging them in the way of faithfulness? Are you trusting God in every area of your life to live in Christ-likeness, especially when it seems that the faithfulness He calls us to is hard? Are you obeying God faithfully and finding joy in the simple fact that you are an unworthy servant upon whom He has lavished much grace and love? May God help us to walk faithfully in the way that Christ has set before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this word, for this teaching. Thank you that by your grace you've given us instructions to live by. We want to follow Christ faithfully. We want to follow in his steps. We want to imitate him in everything that we do. And we thank you, Lord, that your instruction teaches us about every aspect of life. The things we've heard this morning, Lord, are in, in words, in understanding, simple. But an application can be very hard. And so we ask, Lord, you would have your Holy Spirit to help us As we apply these things to our lives, perhaps there are specific situations that you will bring to mind this week in which we can apply these things. I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraging one another to keep on moving forward to that goal, to that destination that you have reserved for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.